You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Good morning, church. Before I read our text today, I just wanted to say thank you. We've been out for two weeks with COVID, and my little one has asthma, and I was really afraid and scared um, when he drove her off to the ER. Um, And I just remember praying, Lord, help me. I'm here by myself praying for my daughter. And I remember him reminding me, you're not alone. The church is praying with you. And so I just wanted to thank you guys for caring for our family during the past two weeks and for being the church outside of Sunday morning, um, for really sustaining us and praying for us and caring for us and loving us well. So thank you. Um, Our sermon text today comes from Acts 2, 36 to the end of the chapter. Right? (laughs) Okay. Therefore, let all of the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord your God will call. With many other words he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved with this corrupt, from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all, as many had need. As any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is God's word. Good morning, good morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2. Which mic am I on? Okay, Acts chapter 2. 36 through 47, what you heard, just read this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to open them up. We do have the text on the screen, but it's helpful for you to, to see what we're talking about as we're, as we're walking through the text. I get a little wild and crazy. I don't want my elbow to catch this. Sorry. Um, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have some that we'd love to put in your hands. So, uh, so please let us know. I'm Chad. I'm one of the pastors here as well at King's Cross, and I'm excited to celebrate one year as the body of Christ gathered together King's Cross here, starting in this very place. We were rotated a little bit, but we're, we're in the same spot. And God has been faithful. We have learned so much and been encouraged so much. And I would ask that as we look at this text, one that goes through a very central and pivotal time in the life of the early church where they're transitioning really and beginning what is our understanding of the church a big picture, pull out, look at what God is doing in the church. I would ask that you pray with me that 
God would illuminate our hearts and give me the words and wisdom that I've prepared to speak so that we might be, that we might be built up and grown to be more like Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm thankful for the privilege it is to be here together with these that you have brought into this place to worship. God, I don't know everyone here today, but you do. And Lord, I ask as we open up your word that your truth would shine brightly. That I would decrease and you might increase. God, teach us this morning those things that we don't already clearly know. Give us wisdom to see where you're at work and got a heart to respond so that we might be made more like Christ. And I ask all this in his name. Amen. What is the church? What is the church? What is it supposed to be? If you're someone who is visiting with us today, uh, it's a great week. If you're not familiar with, with uh, the church, maybe you're just exploring and trying to find out something new or it's a second first, second time you've been in one of these spaces and things are a little weird. We go through a lot of different um, uh, rituals it might appear to be. It's a great week because what we're going to look at in this passage is really what's at the core of the church in the New Testament and today. It is what is of primary importance in the church and creates a foundation for the church that we, that we serve in, live in, worship in, in this very room. What is God doing by bringing together this crazy group of people? We know from previous uh, studies that there are, there are wealthy uh, businesswomen, there are slaves, there are all types and varieties of people just like we see here in this room. And we can, if we're, not, if we're not careful, get mixed up in the wrong priorities. And we can sometimes have unmet expectations, and there is true church hurt, but God is doing something, and if we have a, a realistic view of what the Spirit is doing in the church, then I think we lay some great groundwork for how we walk together as the body of Christ. We've talked previously about the kingdom of God and that Christ has inaugurated God's kingdom on earth. That as he came, he proclaimed and preached the kingdom over and over and over again. And before he left, the disciples were saying, are you now going to bring the kingdom? And he said, he said, don't worry about the timing. Just know that the Holy Spirit will come in power and you will be my witnesses. And that's exactly what we saw occur in the beginning of Acts. We saw that, that as Christ ascended into heaven and the disciples waited earnestly and prayed that the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and filled his people. And they began to speak in miraculous ways uh, as Aaron preached this message and shared that they were speaking in tongues that were of various, I mean, it's like me coming up here and just starting going perfect fluent German because I'm not there. And so they were heard and understood by a variety of people who were Jews from all over the Roman Empire coming together for Pentecost. And in that, God has inaugurated the kingdom in the lives of his people. And what we want to see today and what we want to draw out and focus in on in this passage is that the glory of God's kingdom is shining in this dark world through the life of his spirit-filled people. And I'm very careful about the way I'm saying that. And I'll tell you why. Because a church that is not filled with the spirit is not a church. It's a group of people who maybe have similar likes and interests. But if the Spirit's not present, then God's not there. And that's where life comes from. 
And in this passage, as we read it, I'd like to set a little context for our understanding that the image and picture that we see in this passage is a 10,000 foot view of the work of the Spirit in the church. God's the one at work. The Spirit is the one changing and working through his people. That as he fills his people and they trust in Christ, and it, we'll read this, as they receive the promised Spirit, they then commit themselves to obey Christ. And he works through that to bear fruit. It's the lives that are changed by the Spirit that's present in his people. God is advancing his kingdom as we are walking by the Spirit. But guess what? Real life... And the church is also messy. We don't see that in this context. But even in the mess, the Spirit is still working in God's people. And this is a picture. And in this picture, we're going to look at three aspects. Three aspects I'm going to focus in and drill down on that I think are very clear. And we start in 36 on purpose. Because what we see is the foundation of the church, the devotion of the church, and the life of the church. So let's start in the foundation in verse 36 through 41. In 36 through 41, we read this starting in verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. The foundations of the church, God's spirit-filled people, first and foremost, is to trust in the king. Trust in Jesus. What are they trusting in? Well, Peter tells them he has just finished a sermon in which he has tried to lay the groundwork for Israel and say, this guy, Jesus, that you crucified, he is Lord and Messiah. And for them, it had a very important meaning. He's Lord, that means he has power and authority as God does. If he's Messiah, then he also has grace and mercy as a Savior. In fact, that's not only important for them to know, that's important for us. Remember as Luke wrote this, doc, this gospel, not this gospel, but he wrote his gospel and then the, the records, the accounts and acts, he's very sensitive to the fact that this is a recording of the gospel going not only to the Jew, but also to the Gentiles. Now if you know who the Gentiles are, that's, that's us. If you're not of Jewish heritage, that's you and I. And we know that the gospel left didn't leave, but moved on from within Israel and went on to expand into the Gentiles because we're meeting here today. It's a rich history that goes down through time to our present day. And it's important for us to know that Christ is both Lord and Messiah because in effect, Jesus is God's answer to the accusation that was made against him in the garden. What do I mean by that? Well, In the garden, we read an account of the serpent coming to Adam and Eve and tells a lie, plants a lie. In the account in the garden, first he goes to Adam and Eve who have been told they can have anything but this tree. And so they need to trust God who's made all things, who they have relationship with, and don't touch that. But the serpent says, no, did he really say that? Look, here's the lie. No, you will certainly not die. The serpent said to the woman, In fact, God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So what was the challenge that the serpent laid down? He asserted 
an accusation that God is not all-powerful. He is not the authority and challenged his character. Did he really say that? He's keeping something good from you. In Romans, Paul talks about this lie because that lie continued to be spread by his enemy all throughout history, and we buy into it. We buy into it. Paul says it this way, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator. We took what was intended correctly for us to worship in God and said, no, you're keeping something special from us. These things look great. But what's crazy about that is he made those things. And listen, as a parent, as a parent, have you ever heard that thing like, I don't have to let you stay in my house. I bought it. I put the roof over your head. You listen to my rules. Now, God's not trivial, but the, it sort of still applies. He made this house, and he gave you all those good things. And we're like the kid in the corner that says, I don't want you. And I don't want to listen to you, but I'm going to play with the things you gave me. But the truth is, when I say that Christ is the answer to this challenge, It's like God saw what the enemy did and the lie that he set, and when he captivated man, really, we're captive to death, right? All of mankind is captive to the power of death. As we do, as we sin, as we follow after things that aren't Christ, we are captive to death. And God in Christ has dealt a bleth, I can't say it all right, a death blow to the enemies and to death. Because we're no longer a slave to it. The enemies of God are playing go fish, and God's playing 5D chess. And Jesus is a checkmate. Game's over. You lose. Because now, while these people who stand before you were captive to death, there is now an answer in the Lord and Messiah Christ. And that's exactly what Paul says in Colossians when he says, that you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, and he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us, and he opposed to us, and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed, here it is, the rulers and authorities, and he disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. In Christ, God has defeated the enemy. And Peter says, this guy's the one. Jesus is God's proclamation to the world. There's only one God most high, and he is all-powerful, wise, loving, gracious, and he is good. There's only one right way to respond to that revelation, and it's by what we see in the audience here in verse 37. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, and they said to Peter, And the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Brothers, what should we do? Everyone has to respond to this. Everyone has to deal with this. Once you understand and hear and see, when you see what God has done in Christ, there is a response called to. And God has has placed before us in this place today the truth of who Jesus is and that in him he is the Savior and Lord. And it's either repentance or it's hardening. It's either repentance or it's hardening. And what I mean by that is if you reject what you have before you in Christ, 
Scripture tells us that only leads towards more hardening of your own heart. You either walk away continuing to believe what is the lie in this world, or it pierces to the heart like this. And so many in this crowd responded by being pierced to the heart. And I encourage you the same. If you feel and see in Christ the truth of the gospel, and you see hope, and you don't understand it, don't walk out of this place without responding and saying, what do I do? What do I do? If this is true, what do I do? Because Peter tells us what to do. He says, repent and be baptized, each of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. If you are following after Christ, if you are following after the lie, that means you're following after the world. You're worshiping things of the world. And he says, turn from that. Repent is to turn. Renounce that commitment. If you know anybody who has ever uh, become a citizen of the United States, You've renounced all of the citizenship. You've renounced all of the commitments. And you, you commit and swear to follow after and to be a citizen of this country. In the same way, he is saying, follow King Jesus and be a citizen of God's kingdom. Repent from this world and follow after him. Believers, for the forgiveness of your sins, we don't only repent that one time, but we recognize that God is continually working in us. You know, when you fly, here's a really important thing about this passage that I hope to, to drill down. As we see this, we have to understand that this is the foundation of what it means to be the church. That repentance for us is both forgiveness of our sins, but we also trust in Christ for, for others' sins. Now, here's what I mean by that. When I trust in Christ, it doesn't save anybody else. Hear me and follow me now. But when I trust that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient, that means when they sin against me, I don't hold it against them. I leave that to Christ as well. The reason I say this is the foundation for the way the church functions in the rest of this passage is because we're so imperfect that you are guaranteed I'm going to sin against you. I might have already done it this morning. And I know that we're going to hurt one another because we're imperfect people who will fall into sin and temptation. We will not always walk by the Spirit. And it's important to know that we trust in the saving work of Christ for all sin, even our own, but also others that sin against us so that we can forgive freely. We can forgive miraculously. We can forgive far above we can ever do in our own power. Because we don't bear the weight of their sin on ourselves, Christ bore it for them. I'm, next week, I'm going to be flying across uh, to a conference um, for work. If you've ever flown in a plane and you've been way, way up over the U.S. and the land, and you, or anywhere for that matter, but especially when you go over like uh, farmland and rural areas and the croplands, have you ever seen just beautiful farms that have been grown up and cultivated and you see these rows and rows of corn or or tomatoes or strawberries or whatever they're growing in there but it just looks perfectly squared up off sometimes patchwork it looks like a giant quilt it's beautiful but what you don't see from 10,000 feet is the blood sweat and tears of the farmer what you don't see from 10,000 feet is the broken down tractors and the maintenance bills and the trouble in the home over the stress of long days and late nights 
and anxiety over the crops coming in and when the rain is going to come. All of the work that's being done for that field is not seen at 10,000 feet. And I want to stress that because when we see this picture in this next portion of the church, we're looking at the spirit working, but we know that inside the church that the flesh is still being wrestled with. And we know that this flesh is still being wrestled with because we have the rest of Acts. Because we see people hurting and lying to one another. We see people who are, who are loving as, uh, the world more than they do Christ. And we see places where the church has to wrestle with those things, with people not being served well enough. We see Paul and Barnabas coming to a disagreement about how they will go on mission, and they split ways for a time. And all of that's not super neat and clean rows like 10,000 feet looking over a crop field. And the reason I want us to do the hard work of recognizing the foundation of what a church takes before we look at what the commitments of this church and life of the church was is because I want to issue a very serious warning that we not look at 42 through 47 and create in our own minds some idyllic image of what the church functions like and worship that more than we do the Savior. And I say it's a risk of an idol because I've seen it. I know it's a risk of an idol because I've, I've been tempted to it. I know it's a risk of an idol because I've been told never to talk to somebody again because they felt they were harmed because we weren't living up to it. When others fail to meet our expectations and we've set up this church idea as an idol, then when they offend our idol, you will sacrifice them on the altar to your God. Preferences are not dogma. Opinions are not gospel. The Spirit is the one that works in the church, and He changes people, not you. In fact, Galatians 5 and 6 is Paul addressing some of those very similar issues in the church in Galatia. When he writes to them, he says, you are walking by the Spirit. You're trusting in works to get it done, and you need to walk. You're walking in the flesh. You need to walk in the Spirit, and you need to love the brethren, to approach each other humbly and graciously and kindly. Does that mean that we don't sin against other, uh, each other in ways that sometimes are irreconcilable? Sometimes we do. But Paul says, inasmuch as it depends on you, live peaceably together. So how can we be sure that we're in the church? What is the affirmation of that? It's the end of this chapter. You repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit. Because that's God's down payment. That's his affirmation that he's keeping his promise. That he is placing in you and bearing witness to you in his spirit that you are his child. That you're in the family. This section is the only measure given for the forgiveness of sins. The next passage goes on to how that plays out in their life. But this passage, trusting in Christ and receiving the Holy Spirit is where forgiveness of sins applies. And the rest of this is an outflow from the trust that we place in him. 
So what happens to the church if they now trust in the king? What is evident in their life? Well, if you trust in a king who's all-powerful, knows all, and loves you, and is gracious and kind, you do what he says. You obey him. So let's look. The devotions of the church. The word is used very specifically here in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. God's spirit-filled people commit themselves to obedience. The first passage, the first of the four things that he mentions is the apostles' teaching. We, can know, we know that Christ commanded his disciples, even as he left, in Matthew 28 when he ascended, he said, Go, make disciples, and teach them everything I've commanded you. He is teaching the disciples what is true and what is obedience, and then says, Take that and teach it to others. And guess what happens when you teach him everything he's commanded you? Well, you also tell them, Go and teach others. And so the church is a disciple-making machine. It's supposed to be because we need to know and follow Jesus more closely. In order to do that, we need to learn what he had to say. And as a body at King's Cross, that's why we're committed to expositional preaching as a practice of exposing what the text is. Even as you hear me today, what I mean is we look at what the Bible says and we seek to follow and obey. So we want to learn and grow and hear from God. We don't have the apostles here with us, but we have, we have God's word. We also commit ourselves to study both personally and together. Discipleship, formally and informally that happens in small groups and in, and in one-on-ones at a coffee shop. The second thing that he, they committed themselves to, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. Read that again. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. 46 has a very similar passage, a very similar statement, and it says devoted there as well. It says every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple. The fellowship there is a partnership. It's a coming together, and and it's most often understood to not merely be that you're hanging out with friends, But rather, it's a commitment to worshiping God together. It's a commitment to pursue obedience together. It's a commitment to be partners together in this life because we serve one Christ, one Savior, with one Spirit. It's fellowship in a very radical way because as as Jesus said in John 13, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. That means if we love one another, we love their soul and we want them to be more like Christ too. It's religious devotion, participation in worship together. For, for, for those of us here at King's Cross, that means we come together in this gathering for that purpose. To edify the body, to build one another up, to point ourselves and one another to Christ. We also meet in small gatherings called gospel communities. And Aaron mentioned about that, where we meet in homes. where We, we eat together, we, we serve together in the communities, we meet our neighbors, we invite them in to study the word. But, but importantly, we edify and d- disciple and encourage one another in those contexts. So we devote ourselves as well to fellowship. The third thing mentioned is to the breaking of bread. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And we might not always use this phrase. In Jewish culture, we often see this because uh, formally meals were started by breaking a loaf of bread. Um, There's a little mixture view on this and whether this just means they are simply eating together. Uh, There's reason to believe that they had fellowship meals that also included the Lord's Supper. But we also know that Christ commanded to do 
that in remembrance of him. The Lord's Supper is when we take the bread and we take the cup and we say, as Christ was broken for us and our sins, we take that bread and remember his work that he's done. Tuning our hearts to always reflect. His salvation was not a one-time event that we might be so quickly to forget, but we refresh our memories week after week. And we take the cup and say, this blood was spilt for us for the forgiveness of sins. And we drink the cup in that remembrance. And so at King's Cross, we practice weekly communion. We break bread together. The fourth thing they mention is to prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. Every day they met together in the temple. Um, it's an interesting thing to think about. This is a primarily Jewish group of people. And all of a sudden they're Christian. And but what seems to be evident is they don't just stop doing all the Jewish things. So they're going, we don't go to the temple today, but they go to the temple. And, and on this text as well, it says that they devote themselves to prayer or to the prayers, which means there's a sense in which they are very intentionally committing themselves, not just to a personal practice of talking to God at home, but to the prayers, for example, in Jewish culture, they have regular times of prayer throughout the day. There's corporate prayer and reflection. Jesus himself commanded his disciples in Matthew 6, pray like this. He lived by an example of his, uh, to his disciples day after day, and he commanded them on how and directed them on how they might pray, and so the, the disciples committed themselves to it. And prayer, ultimately, of many of the things we do, is an is a outworking of the dependence that we have on the Father. A, a, a very dead prayer life is a life that doesn't see their dependence on him. It's not only in personal prayer, but it's in corporate prayer. Corporate prayer, like this morning in particular, a group of us who were here and you're invited to, we meet together at 9.30, to pray kingdom prayers. That we pray that as Christ worked, as the Spirit worked in the church in this text, that he'd continue to work in our church today. And he does, we see it. We see it. And so the disciples committed themselves to these four things. They committed themselves in practice because Christ commanded it. So we do, as the church, seek to be obedient as we understand. To the best of our ability, we devote ourselves in pursuit of the things which God has pointed us to. And something to note about these devotions that I'd want us to take warning of is that you can actually fake these devotions. You could come at 9.30 every week and pray with us. You could make sure that you're with us every time we have a meeting. You could do all of these practices as a checklist. And as a human being, I understand liking having a list that you can feel like you achieved. And it's the very reason that I wanted us to start with the foundations of Christ. Because if we pursue these works in the flesh to keep up appearances, there are no value to you. Isaiah 29, 13, the Lord spoke to his prophet Isaiah and he said this, these people approach me with their speeches to honor me with lip service, yet their hearts are far from me. This is both an encouragement and a warning that we are dependent on the foundation of Christ and his forgiveness 
and that we walk in obedience out of that. And what happens in the church? Well, it's this third, the third section of this text is the life of the church or the fruit that they bear from obedience. What do they see? Verses 43 through 47. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Verse 43 says they're filled with awe and many signs and wonders are being performed through the apostles. The apostles were notably a unique circumstance. We don't see everybody, anybody and everybody doing signs and wonders. And we don't see that explicitly today necessarily. I'm not planning to get up here and demonstrate signs and wonders for you. But I will say that something to note is even though God is validating his gospel in the apostles and the signs that they were doing, he does still work today in areas and spaces as he knows the way people respond in those ways. There is awe and wonder and signs and wonders that happen, maybe not in America, maybe not here, because we are just, we've got so much video and skepticism, we're like, we wouldn't believe it if we saw it. But I know stories from missionaries around the world where this happens today. In their face, they see it. I spoke with a Haitian pastor um, years ago. And when he first established his church uh, within a, next to a Haitian village, there, was two, <clears throat> there were two uh, witch doctors. One was kind of the assistant, the assistant witch doctor. The one was the head one. And when he first showed up, he put his church in, and he needed to make some rearrangements in the property. And there was a tree that was just in the way of what they needed to do. And that tree um, is, have you ever seen like an um, avatar or something like that? Like it, it was a spiritual tree, okay? It, they believed ancestors were in, that was the spirit of the ancestors in this tree. And I'm not saying you go poke people in the eye when you leave here today, but he cut it down. And they went crazy. I mean, they were, the witch doctor was angry. It was a, I, I had been there at a time when a tree was off to the side. And I will tell you, as, as uh, the guru that was there that was not locals, that that church and the people of that church circled the tree until we left. It's important to them. He cut it down. And that witch doctor came out that day or the very next day and visibly cursed this man in front of the entire town in this village. And the next day, the witch doctor fell ill to death. The entire village started coming to that church. Now, he still had an assistant witch doctor there, and they had a hurricane. And when the hurricane come, came, the pastor was the contact point for the mission teams that came in to try to help re- rebuild. And this pastor said, when he directed them, he said, I want you to start over here. And he pointed over to where the, the what is now new head witch doctor home was. He said, start there. Fix his home up, repair it, give him a home. He demonstrated the love of Christ in him and said, start here. And now that witch doctor's home where they have an altar literally in the middle of it that they used to sacrifice chickens, hosts a Bible study. God still works in miraculous ways in times and places in our lives today. And the other way in which we know that he works is that he puts a spirit, his spirit, inside us and changes us he makes us more like him and so my challenge to us is that we need to anticipate the spirit's work more we need to recognize that that god still does work and his spirit is still alive my fear is that as a church we don't anticipate his spirit to work and so we don't pray for his spirit to work 
When we come here to pray at 9.30 in the morning, we're praying for miracles to happen that we can't explain. When you come to me and to Aaron and say, I have a surgery, I have, I have an issue, I have a medical thing, I want the doctors to be blown away because they don't understand what happened to you. We want to pray with anticipation because the early church was in awe of what God did. And we should be still today. That we would not only anticipate his work, but also recognize and praise God for his work that we see in the lives changing others. The second thing we see occurring out of the lives of the believers is, that, is, is their miraculous love for the people of God. Starting in verse 44, now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and they broke bread from house to house. So what we see in those two verses, 44 and 45, is that the believers were together, remember fellowship. But the outworking of that being together is they held all things in common. They sold possessions and property and distributed proceeds to all that has need. We see in Scripture, let love that we have in us be genuine. Well, that's what we see here. Genuine love for one another overflows into meeting needs of others. It's not... And, and this has been used as a proof text. It's not Jesus endorsing socialism as a program or a, or a solution. It's not a, a particular communal living situation. And the reason I know it's not a communal living situation is because we read later in Acts where there's a couple who wants to kind of be like all the other people that are being really generous. And so they sell their property so everybody sees it. And they come to Peter and they give money and like, ooh, look at us. We're also part of the the group that's giving but what they didn't tell everybody is that part of the proceeds they kept for themselves now was that a wrong thing for them to keep part for themselves that's not actually what is criticized about them in the text what's criticized is they try to lie that they try to take credit for what they're not doing and then as peter says lie to the holy spirit because his very statement that peter says to them is this when you had the land before you sold it couldn't you have done anything you wanted to do with it? Why are you lying to the Spirit? So that's why I know it's not required by the church that they sell everything to hand it over. We're not asking, hey, big move, guys. If you've got a piece of property and want to sell it, we have that 100,000 mark we're trying to hit. We're going to blow past it, okay? Give us all your money. That's not what is happening. Instead, it's generosity that is changing in their heart that they want to meet the need of one another. We have a benevolence fund here at King's Cross that we seek to do that very thing as we have need within our church. But even as we have that benevolence fund to meet needs within the body, I know that you guys are generous with one another beyond, with one another beyond that. You're generous with your homes, with your time, with your finances. You give when someone loses a job unexpectedly, when someone is, is hurt or harmed or sick and has something that puts them down. You help meet those needs when they're laid up at home and can't cook for themselves. I see the outpouring of the Spirit to meet those needs. And in this church where there's slave and free, there's rich and poor, they're all one Lord with one Savior. And it's incredibly difficult for us to love that Savior, devote ourselves together to fellowship, devote ourselves to pray together, to kneel before the cross beside someone who has devastating, debilitating need and ignore it. Then love is not genuine. And that's not Christ-like. 
because he gave everything for us. So we see generosity in the church. We see them laying down and giving of themselves above and beyond to one another. And then in 46 and 47, we also see that they demonstrated gratitude to God. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God. They recognized as every good thing that they had, that they were generous with other people, that they also celebrated it because it all came from him. Scripture says elsewhere, what is it that you have that God didn't give you? And they know that to be true. That if one person is rich and one is poor, that they don't have necessarily, they don't have anything particular to glory in themselves about. God is the one who is gracious. There are some incredibly hardworking people that have nothing. And there's some people that were born with a lot. That's not always the case. But God's the one that grants that generosity, or he grants generously those people who have. And in this context, they ate food with joyful and sincere hearts. I can relate to this, because if I've ever sat down, just like I'm going to about to do this afternoon while we eat together, and I just have a really good steak. I'm sorry if you don't eat meat. I just, steak comes to mind. That's the first trigger. You ever notice that whenever they try to improve something, they wrap it in bacon? All right, let's pray and go. No. Um, <laughs> God's the one that gives those things. And the church knew that, and the church were joyful, and they praised God. And finally, what we see evidently in this text is in verse 47. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. See, outsiders looked on the church and the believers positively. And, and I have to say, we can't take ownership of every person in America that claims the name of Christ. But your neighbor knows you. And so when you claim Christ, don't, don't think about the talking head or the commentator who uses verses as a talking point to make a political statement that upsets whatever half of the country. Think about your neighbor because what the early church did, as they loved one another, they also loved the unbeliever, those who were not in the household of God, so much so that Scripture says the favor of all people was upon them. Peter, later in his, in his um, epistle, he says that to live your life in such a way that they see your life and praise God for it. They were thought well of by outsiders because of their grace and their kindness. And then finally in the last passage, every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So I know they were thought well of and they loved unbelievers because not only did they think well of him, of them, not only did they, uh, did they, um, did they think well and have favor in all people and unbelievers, but every day the Lord added unbelievers to their number. That people recognize a genuine change of life in this group of people. And like Peter said, they were always prepared to give an answer for the hope that was in them. And note, who's the one that adds to their number? The Lord added. The Lord brought the increase. If we're talking about fields and farmers, which by the way, just analogies, I don't want to run them to the ground. They always fall flat at some point. But 
That farmer works super hard in that field. But if God doesn't bring the increase, nothing happens. And as we serve and love one another, as we love the community around us, if God is going to add at all to this number of his family, it's all going to be in his strength and his power. And praise God, he is the most powerful and most high God. Because we know his power and strength is sufficient, that Christ is sufficient to save. And we want to see the kingdom grow as we shine the glory of God's kingdom in this dark world through our life as a spirit-filled church. Believers, our foundation is in King Jesus, and we want to follow after him in obedience day after day. Unbelievers, if you're here with us today, thank you for being here. If you're someone who doesn't know about who Christ is, we want to tell you more about him. If you're someone who is saying, you know what, pierce to the heart, this makes sense, I want to know. I want to know what this is, what do I do? We want to introduce you to King Jesus because he is great and glorious and good. He is the most high God who loves and saves. And we want to bring you into the family. Let's pray and thank God for his word. Father, I'm grateful for the privilege it is to worship you and thankful for the word that you've given here today. I ask, God, that you would guide us and direct us as we follow after you. Lord, strengthen us to be devoted to your word and prayer. Strengthen us to follow you in obedience. Strengthen us to be the kind of church that follows the king. And God, give us the power and strength to be a light in this world so that others will see your glory in our lives and come to the kingdom of God. Grant us that even here today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.